Colossians 2.16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on aestheticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Um, many of you have made mention of the fact that, that this passage in the whole book of Colossians is, is speaking to you as I tell you it speaks to me and continues to speak to me. And I just want to remind all of us that the backdrop of where we are today and what Paul is saying as he, he moves from instructing us on what we need to know to now admonishing us on what we need to do in light of what we know, all the backdrop for that is verses 9 through 15 of Colossians 2. I put it in your bulletin again by way of a reminder. You could look at your bulletin or you can follow along in your Bible. Remember the word therefore in verse 16 is that transition that Paul uses so that we will apply what he has so clearly explained where all that happened to us at salvation. I say all that happened to us here in the book of Colossians, but there's more than this. This is just what he said in Colossians. If we want to do, we could go further because there's even more than this uh, that's happened to us in Christ. So if you remember, you can look, again, follow along or look at your bulletin that in verse 10, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 11, our fleshly desires were cut off by Christ. 12 and 13, we're buried and raised to new life by God the Father. Verse 13, all of our sins were forgiven. Verse 14, the record of our sins that were created in our own handwriting were placed upon Christ. Verse 14 again, Christ then is nailed to the cross by God the Father for our sins. Verse 15, God triumphs over Satan and all of his demonic forces. And then 14 and 15, through the cross, basically in summary, the victory has been won. We're waiting for Christ's return. And it's on account of all of these benefits that Paul moves on to these two admonitions. The first one we looked at in detail last week in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. And then the other admonition we'll look at today in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. Now, I don't want to go backwards and, and say too much about last Sunday's sermon. The emphasis in verse 16 and 17 was to not to allow these false teachers to put you under the bondage of obeying their legalistic rules and laws that had no biblical basis for you to obey them. They're trying to bind your conscience and steal your joy by having you follow their 
their unbiblical list of, of what to eat or drink or what ceremonies to hold on to and continue uh, making these legalistic demands. And they missed the whole point of the Old Testament, that the ceremonies and the sacrifices all were just shadows that eventually pointed to Christ. And now that we have Christ, there's no need to go back and live in those shadows. Jesus is here. He, he's, he's kept the law, and he fulfilled the law. And it's our faith in him that saves us. It's our faith in him that sanctifies us. So we have no need to follow these man-made legalistic, legalistic traditions. Instead, we continue to seek Christ, love Christ, know Christ as he's been, re- been revealed to us through his word. This morning, as we move on to verse 18, Paul's admonition to not be disqualified really takes us back to chapter 1, verse 12, when he told the Colossians that they're now qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. In and through Christ, we saw when we were back in chapter 1, we went from darkness to light, from death to life, from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of Christ. We went from being unqualified to being in the presence of the saints, with, in, of God with the saints, to now, not because of our works, not because of our merit, not because of our goodness, not because we deserve it, but we are now qualified because of Christ's perfect life, sacrificial death, and subsequent resurrection. And what he's saying is he commands them to not let anybody disqualify them. He's not talking about losing their salvation, but he's warning them not to let anybody rob them of the joy and the relationship they have with God through Christ. The the word disqualify is actually, it's an athletic term. It's used when an umpire disqualifies a contestant because they didn't keep the rules. What Paul's literally saying is, don't let them disqualify you. Don't let them judge you. Don't let them condemn you. Don't let them declare you of being unworthy for a prize. Don't be in baseball. Don't, don't be called out in a sense. Paul's telling these Colossian believers that if you follow their teaching, if you do what they're telling you to do, then you will be disqualified. You will be sidelined. You won't be in the game. You'll be on the bench. In effect, you'll be completely ineffective if you follow what they're telling you. Now, without overthinking this passage, I think the simplest way to see this is that we will be disqualified if we follow what I have labeled as mystical teaching instead of holding fast to Christ. That's, that's probably as, as short of a summary as I could give here. That's the contrast, and you'll see this as we move forward in the passage. But first, let's look at a few words we have to explain. That reference to asceticism has the definition or the idea of, of a voluntary self-abasement. It's a, it's a practice that oftentimes is employed to battle against vices or, or, or add virtues by renouncing things and even adopting um, painful conditions for some sort of religious reasons. Uh, we saw this last week when we mentioned about how the Gnostic heresy was the body's bad, only the spirit is good. So they were teaching you have to deny yourself food and deny yourself pleasure and deny yourself some of God's good gifts so you can have a more holy life. Well, here it's going a step further. He's not just saying deny yourself, 
but they're actually saying you need to add some affliction, actually harm yourself, purposely cause yourself to suffer to aid you in your, in your walk with God. You know, the Reformation uh, anniversary was last weekend, and if any of you have read much about Martin Luther or seen any of the documentaries of the movies that are out, um, he put himself as a monk under physical torture as he desired to seek God through his aesthetic lifestyle. In early church history, it's reported that some ascetics would practice extreme forms of fasting and self-deprivation. In the popular mind, there seems to have been an association between the abandonment of human comforts and the acquisition of miraculous powers. So the general thought is that the more you deny yourself, the more power you'll receive or the more closer that you'll walk with God. I remember when I was in Bible college years ago, there was an, a cassette tape circulating. Now, if you're 30 or under, you probably have never seen a cassette tape. It was not online. It was not on the internet. It was a cassette tape. You had to actually put it in a thing, and you push the button, and it makes it go. And you could rewind it, and you could go fast forward. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but that's okay. There was this cassette tape being circulated, and it was a, a teaching people how to pray for a solid hour. And the purpose behind this is a full hour of prayer a day will give you power, some sort of mystical power. If you, if you follow what this man was saying, you, you'd find uh, a difference in your prayer answers. Uh, you'd find victory over sin. Uh, you, you'd find more conversion for the lost. Uh, you'd find a greater love and a greater commitment to Christ because of this invested hour. It was a denial of self, a greater focus on God for that hour that would in fact lead to greater things for Christ. Well, why wouldn't you try it? I'm not saying we shouldn't pray, nor would I ever discourage someone from praying daily, and I wouldn't discourage anybody from praying for an hour every single day. Of course, if anybody knew you are praying for an hour a day, you've lost your reward because Jesus said, to pray to your Father in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. Nobody should know anything about your personal prayer habits because it produces pride. You shouldn't broadcast that to the world. That set aside, though, remember last week at the end of the service, Rick mentioned how wrong it is that we come to God with the idea that there's a cause and effect to our self-denial. That, that if I come to church and instead of hunt on opening day at 11 o'clock, that the next day God will give me the eight point. I know he will. Because I've denied myself on Sunday, therefore God will bless me on Monday. Now that's that mystical or superstitious idea that, that when we do this, God is obligated to give you that. If you deny this, then God will bless you with that. It's just wrong thinking. But we all succumb to it at times and it's classic mysticism it's so easy to get caught in that trap um, you read your bible in the morning and you pray and you're thinking what god is going to bless my day well you don't take the time to read your bible and you don't pray and your day goes poorly you think it's because you didn't have your quiet time that is not how god operates our good days and bad days are not tied to our performance. Now, if they were, then Jesus would have never suffered. 
because Jesus obeyed perfectly all of the time, and yet he suffered and died for sin. The Apostle Paul suffered throughout his life. Believers suffer. They lose their families. They lose their reputation. They lose their jobs. They lose all manner of things, even though throughout their lives they may perform, quote, faithfully. But it doesn't stop us from thinking this way. We have good days and bad days for a variety of reasons, but we need not tie them into some sort of aesthetic religious exercise. Uh, years ago, when I, was, I was, hadn't married a year yet, met a guy who was uh, married, had more than one child, and was a busy guy. And he looked at me, and he told me, over the next few weeks, his, his, his life is going to be so busy, he's going to be twice as busy as normal, so he's going to double up on his devotions. And I, okay, so you, I, I thought, I thought, wow, that guy, he, he, he's a spiritual guy. He's going to double up on his devotions because he's going to be so busy. He actually thought by doing twice as much as normally in regards to Bible study and prayer that God would help him in the days and weeks ahead with this workload increase dramatically. Now, I don't want to discourage anybody from seeking God. I don't want to discourage anybody from reading their Bible and being faithful. We all need, we all need what we used to call holy habits. I don't hear that phrase nearly as often as I used to, but we need to bring it back. Holy habits coincide with what we oftentimes refer to the normal means of grace. We need church attendance, being underneath the authority of God's word, corporate worship, baptism, the Lord's Supper, Bible reading, meditating, prayer, study, fellowship. All of these should be the normal, natural part of our lives as Christians as we develop these holy habits. But we participate in these because of our love for God. Because of all that's happened to us that's spelled out in verses 9 through 15. Because we want to know Christ and continue to learn and understand all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge found in Him. We don't live this way to add a mystical reward to whatever we're doing. See, you seek Him, you desire to know Him, you want to fellowship with Him, because all that he's done for you already, not because of some other reward in this life that you're expecting because of some aesthetic view. As our text goes on, the, the teachers were also advocating, advocating the worship of angels. They're teaching that God, God is so far beyond us that we have to reach him through a series of mediators, angels being one of them. So it's not really a denial of worshiping God, rather it's through angels we're able to gain access to God and ultimately a denial of Christ as our sole mediator. Now, to some of you, this probably sounds really strange, but if you have a Catholic background at all, this is not strange in any way. Part of the reasons Catholics pray to Mary is because they're trying to get to God through the back door. You know, God is holy, and he's angry, and he's unreachable, and he's untouchable, and he's full of wrath, and he requires so much, and, 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 and Christ is not that approachable either. So instead of talking to God through, our, through Christ, you know, if you're getting good with his mom, like all good moms, Mary will take your request to Jesus, and then Jesus will take it to God, and then God will answer you. So you go through the mom, through the son, to the Father, she will mediate for you. I mentioned Luther a little bit ago. 
And this whole idea of asceticism and angel worship is right up his alley. When he felt he was going to die in a, in, a, in a lightning storm, he cried out, Saint Anne, help me, and I will become a monk. He was saved from the storm, and he kept his promise. But up until that moment, this is before he actually became a believing Christian, he didn't pray to God. He prayed to the saints who then brought the requests before God. So this concept of having an angelic mediation, or, or even through saints, is something that's continued in different forms throughout history. Beloved, aren't you grateful that, that we can follow the encouragement of the hymn writer who says, Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give Him the glory, great things He hath done. He is our wonderful, merciful Savior. He is our precious Redeemer and friend. And He's the perfect mediator and the only mediator between God and man. As man, He identifies with us. He understands us. He, he comforts us. And as God, He has the power to save and help us. We've already established in Colossians that, that, that Christ is head over all rulers and all authorities, so there's no need to go to the angels He created. We come straight to the Father through His Son. Now notice that not only are they encouraging this self-abasement and angel worship, they're also touting the need to pursue visions or experiences. Now I think I could safely say that this Paul may have laughed a little bit here. He probably chuckled, he, he, probably. I'm reading in the text, but assume Paul does laugh from time to time. This probably made him laugh. Wait, because Paul's an apostle. He had true visions from God. We know that he had seen Jesus. We know in 2 Corinthians 12 that God took him up to the third heaven, and the scripture says he heard things that cannot be told, which man should not utter. I mean, Paul had, had seen things that he couldn't even talk about that God had showed him. And this particular vision, God gave him a thorn in his flesh to keep him humble. If, if a person did, in fact, have a credible vision, it shouldn't produce pride. It should produce humility. And yet this text tells us these men were puffed up without reason by their own fleshly or carnal, or unspiritual mind. The, the word sensuous in this context has more to do with being worldly than sexual. It, it's, it's these visions they claim that they had, that others should seek, had nothing to do with God. They, they just bolstered their own, their own egos. You know, you know in, ne in nearly every time period throughout history, there's always people in the church that won some sort of word from God. They want God to speak to them audibly. They want God to speak to them directly. They want some sort of supernatural or divine experience. They want visions. They're not looking for direction from God's word. Rather, they're, they're looking for something supernatural. Now, some of you, you may not really have encountered this, depending upon your experiences in the church, but in the late 70s and the 80s, when the charismatic movement fostered the idea of, the, of visions and dreams, and one of these days we can talk about that some, but it was a real misinterpretation of the whole book of Acts, quite honestly. And though it may not be as prevalent today here in the United States as it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, 
It's, this is the prevailing thought in many churches in other countries, especially on the continent of Africa. Uh, one of the main goals of the organization I travel with to Ethiopia called Training Leaders International um, is to teach pastors and leaders that they do not need visions from God. They have everything they need in God's word. So they, need to, they don't need to pray and ask God to give them something to say. They have something to say. They don't need to create sermons out of their own imaginations. And, and, the, and the, the organization is doing all they can to equip pastors and teachers that it's the authority of Scripture where God speaks to us. One pastor looked at one of the leaders, Gil, after we, as we were instructing, and, and he said, uh, he said you mean I have to study to preach? And, and Gil said, yes, you're getting it. You have to study to preach. Well, by the end of the week, by the end of the week, that same gentleman came back, and he said, you know, he, 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 said, he said, this is easier, because now I don't have to think of things in my own mind. Now I don't have to think, think about things and try and get visions from God. I have it here in God's word. I think what this does more than anything else in the context of this church in Colossae is it totally undermines apostolic authority and therefore undermines the authority of God's word. Visions and experiences are always subjective. And, and, and if someone claims they've seen a vision and that God told them to do or say something in that vision, I mean, how can you honestly question it? They, they got it from God. Visions ultimately create an environment where the authority of God's words challenge and the person with the vision or the experience is the final authority, not the scriptures. I, I think the, the one passage for me that is so convincing when it comes to this idea is in 2 Peter 1. Go ahead and turn there. 2 Peter chapter 1. When I begin to read this, you'll, you'll be familiar with the story or the experience that Peter had. 2 Peter 1. You'll know right away that Peter's referencing the time when he and James and John went up to the mountain with Jesus and Jesus was transfigured before them. These three men got a glimpse of the glory of Christ, saw Moses, saw Elijah, and they heard God the Father speak from heaven audibly. I mean, quite a spectacular spiritual experience. And notice as I read that Peter, when he talks about it, how he downplays the vision and demonstrates that our hope, our trust, our confidence should always be in God's inspired, inerrant word. Verse 16 of 2 Peter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we are with him on the holy mountain. I mean, what could be better? Eyewitnesses of the majesty of Christ. There's Moses. There's, remember the story where Peter says, hey, let's build some tabernacles. You know, he's just freaking out. This is so cool. We can build tabernacles. We can just live here forever. I mean, we'd, all, we'd all do the same thing. 
How would you act? And here, as he goes on, and he saw that, that, that and he saw, heard the Father's voice, he confirms, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. Could there ever be a more spectacular and convincing experience? But look at verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Do you see? He's putting God's word over and above seeing Christ and his glory. He's putting God's word above his experience. And then he goes on. To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The prophetic word, the Bible, is more fully confirmed than one of the most spectacular experiences that anyone could ever have seen. And because of that all prophecy of Scripture or all the Word of God was not produced by the will of men, rather, men spoke from God as the Holy Spirit carried them along. Because of this, nobody can ever claim to any private interpretation no private interpretations from Scripture, and no private visions as well. And this is all the more reason why these false teachers should not be listened to. They're not taking you toward Christ. They're taking you away from Christ. They're not following the apostolic teaching from the Word of God. They have become their own authorities. And I think by the time you get to this part in the passage, and we've been walking through Colossians 1 and 2 for, for quite some time now, but, but by the time you get here, you realize they have created a, a Christless, counterfeit religion where they're the final authorities, and there's a complete disconnect between what they're saying and what Paul is saying by the authority of the Word of God through the Holy Spirit. But the, the, the thing is, it's, but it, on the surface, it looks so good. And it looks so spiritual, and it sounds so right. I mean, look at them. They're over there, and they're denying themselves food. They're denying themselves pleasure. They're, they're, they're living an aesthetic life. They're, they're taking vows of poverty. They're, they're keeping some of the high and holy days, and they, they fast for days on end. And I know it's angels, but when they worship, they seem so sincere. They even have their hands raised and everything. And, and the visions they receive... It all seems so convincing. But there's such a problem here. Because Paul states in verse 19, they're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Beloved, there's not one reference to Christ in any of their instruction. In verse 23, Paul states that they're promoting self-made religion. It's just dripping with that, isn't it? They've made their own rules. They've made their own legalistic demands. They've created their own ways to worship. And they're the ultimate authorities. And they're not holding fast to Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. There's such a corporate aspect to standing against the false teaching that we should take notice of. 
I'm certain I'm, that by now I just sound like an absolute broken record. And there's the same people that don't know what a cassette tape is. have never seen a broken record either. They've never seen a record. You have to Google it. But, but, but the reason I say this over and over and over is the Bible says it over and over and over. Everything in here communicates the absolute necessity for church life, for body life, of us being bound together by Christ as a body of believers for us to grow. There's no room for any Christian individualism. In fact, you can't even put those two words together. They don't exist in the same sentence. The moment you were saved, the moment you experienced all those benefits in 9 through 15, at that moment, you became part of the body of Christ. You became part of the church of Christ. And from that point on, you need the church. You need the body. And the body needs you. The church needs you. A Christian life that's not connected to faithful. Faithful. Faithful means not sporadic. A Christian life that's not connected to faithful attendance and participation in a local Bible-believing, Bible-believing, Christ-centered church, it's a complete oxymoron. There is no room in the Word of God for isolated, loner, internet Christians doing their own thing. That is the apex of self-made religion. And that's basically what these false teachers were attempting to do. They're trying to get people away from the church into their instruction. If anything, verse 19 is telling us that those who are not connected and not taking part in a local body are going to be the most susceptible to these false teachers because he wants the whole body, he wants every one of us to hold on to Christ. And if we do, we'll experience at least three things. By holding on to Christ, the immediate assumption is that you're connected to his body, the church. And it's in the church where you first and foremost will be nourished. And the word can mean well-fed or cared for. Could mean guarded or protected. The word means that they'll have their spiritual needs supplied. This is our our deepest desire as a leadership. Every time you come, we want you to be well-fed. We want to receive all of our marching orders from Christ through His word. He's revealed to us everything that we need to know for life and godliness. So we don't seek visions. We seek Christ through his word. So when we gather, our our deepest desire, as we said this before, is to read the Bible and pray the Bible and sing the Bible and preach the Bible so we can all be nourished and cared for in Christ. But secondly, the whole body holds on to Christ. If we do, then we will be knit or join together. Now that word, that word means they'll come together as a unit or they'll be combined. You know, the metaphor for uh, the body's joints and ligaments shows even further the connectedness we're to have as believers. You and I as believers, we are the joints and we are the ligaments. And, and the only way we can ever move together is by listening carefully to one head, the Lord Jesus, who instructs us by his word. So as a church, we're listening to one voice, one head, and we function as one body and should function as the joints and ligaments move together in unison. You can't do this through visions. You can't do this through self-denial. You can't do this through angel worship. 
And don't miss that whole idea that joints and ligaments, they're, they're intertwined and interconnected. Uh, the metaphors for the church are so rich. You know, we're, we're a building and the stones are, are, are smashed together with each other. We're a family and we're all brothers and sisters. And we're a body with various body parts that all function underneath the authority of Christ and His Word. You know, in all honesty, I think one of the greatest difficulties that we're having right now with, with all that's taking place, with whatever our views are, are, are the virus, is an inability to fellowship freely because of COVID. It's, it's just devastating, I think, at times. And I, and, I th- and I think it's having an impact. It's having an impact on our, on our monthly dinners. It's having an impact on some of the other fellowship gatherings. And I think it even has an impact on how we relate uh, to, to one another. If we can't miss the fact that the, the, the growth that we experience, well, let me backtrack a minute. In light of that, since we're not able to, to fellowship as freely as we'd like to, I just want to encourage all of us, to, to, when, you don't, when you see that someone's not here, to first of all pray for them, and then secondly, contact them. Probably one of the biggest encouragements that all of us have is to unexpectedly hear from someone. Oh, I haven't heard from that person in a while. We should all be that person. When you haven't seen someone in a while, let me just encourage you, since we're not able to do what we'd like to do face-to-face always right now, um, we can help one another if we just pray for one another and try to remain in contact with one another. Thirdly, we're holding on fast to Christ, the head, if we do. Then the scripture says we'll grow. We'll grow. Uh, through his nourishment and through our function as a body, we will grow in depth, becoming more Christ-like. And eventually, that leads to growing in breadth. If we corporately together hold fast to Christ, our head, we will corporately grow as a church. And we will not be able to miss the fact that the growth we experience will be from who? God. God builds His church as we're connected to one another and holding fast to His Son. So how do we hold fast to Christ? It's not through the path of mysticism. It's not through the path of legalism. It's it's through the normal means of ordinary grace, like I already said. It's, It's week in, week out, day in, day out faithfulness. Again, show up for worship. Show up for fellowship, pray with one another, read, meditate on God's word, be involved with other believers, plant seeds when able, be connected to and underneath the authority of a local church. See, the problem is, that's just not as flashy as self-denial. That that is not nearly as flashy as sleeping on a bed of nails. That's not as flashy as praying for two hours every day, or seeing visions, or worshiping angels. But God doesn't use the flashy. He uses the weak. He, he, uses, he, he uses simple faithfulness over the course of your entire life and the lives of others in the local church for His glory. You know, Paul summarizes this in such a remarkable way. I, I'm just going to let, let him do it from 20 through 23. It just summarizes everything that we've said for the last several months now. And he asks that wonderful why question in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? 
Why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. It's just a rock-solid conclusion. Because Paul is clearly confused. He's proven his case. They've died to these things. So he says, why? Why are you submitting to the very regulations that you've been freed from? Why are you submitting to the legalism that you were tied to? Why are you submitting to these, these, this do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, when God has given you everything you need and he wants you to enjoy these things for his glory? The dietary restrictions, the keeping of the law, the denying yourself of pleasure, the self-affliction. He says, they're all going to perish. In other words, he's saying there's no eternal value. So why follow those who are teaching these things? I'm certain if we were sitting in the Colossian church on this morning that this book was read, and you were one of those guys been fasting for several days, Right about now, you're going to feel a little shamefaced as Paul reads off, the, as, as whoever was reading this read the word of God. And then Paul lightens the rebuke by just giving a little bit of the answer. He says, They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. On the surface, they, it looks like they have the appearance of wisdom. You know, a faithful Muslim prays several times a day, stops his day, and, and faces Mecca, bows down, and, and when you watch that, they, they do seem so holy. When I was at the airport in Ethiopia at a certain time, it's like the earth stopped, and they all got out their mats, and they prayed a certain direction. It looked way more spiritual than I've ever been. But it's exactly what Paul's saying. Self-made religion. Christless, godless, and no help in our struggle against sin. You know, for some reason, I think we, we reject the simple and we want the complex. You know, Christ frees us, but we want to go back to bondage. We so, many of us so easily submit to rules and regulations it's easier to do that than to learn and remember and trust all that God has done for us in Christ and then live in response to his grace, to his goodness, and his sacrifice for us. Because some of us like lists. We, we, we like the bondage because it allows us to say, we did it. If it some of you are like me, I think. I'm a box checker. Tell me what to do, Lord, and I'll just check my box. Box checkers, by and large, don't have close relationship with the Lord. They have a close relationship with their list. And I'm constantly, the Lord's constantly trying to get me off of my list and fellowshipping with Him. I think Paul speaks to everyone in the room this morning. Some of you are like me, self-righteous, pharisaical, hard to live with people who are heavily influenced by those who tell us to keep this list and keep this rule and keep this regulation. And if you do, you will have power. You will have victory. You'll be more holy and righteous. If you're like me, that creates pride, arrogance, and self-made holiness. And may God convict us. And may God humble us. 
and cause us to simply walk in Him. Others of you live your lives under, under the yoke of people like me. You feel the bondage that comes from self-righteous man-made legalism. You feel the bondage of submitting to man-made rules and regulations about how Christians should dress or what house they should live in or what drink or not to drink or eat. And you don't want to succumb to the rules, but they seem like they're bearing upon you. You know, the answer to both of those, the answer to all of us still is Christ. Because in Him, we have new desires that come through the Spirit living in us. And it's these new desires that give us the desire to be free from sin and the power over sin so we don't have to do it anymore in our own strength. I think that's what Paul is saying for for the better part of these entire two chapters. If we live in Him, if we walk in Him, if we worship Him, if we seek Him and we obey Him, keep in step with Him, live humbly before Him, live grateful before Him, pray to Him, Discover the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are in him, not through visions, not through keeping the law, not through asceticism, rather through the means that he's provided. Back to the basics. Regular worship, prayer, fellowship, teaching, the Lord's Supper. Then he'll give me the grace to flee legalism, and he'll give you the grace to stand firm against the legalists. Let's pray.